You are now listening to Vibe Selection with Kyra, where you can get the real on today's hot topics. Well, welcome, everybody, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of Vibe Selection. I am your host, Kyra, and on today's episode, I have a very special guest joining me. I have Ivan Bodley joining me today, ladies and gentlemen, and he has quite the resume. I mean, I don't even think I can sum up all of his accomplishments within this entire show, but I will do my best. So Ivan has... um, he has uh, performed with uh, over 50 Hall of Fame, uh, Hall, uh, Rock of Hall of Fame inductees. He has toured in over 29 different countries and has played in venues with well over 80,000 people. And he's played with everyone from Sam Moore to Shirley Reeves Alston from the Shirley's. And I just want to have you guys welcome our very special guest today, Ivan. Ivan, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. You're very kind to have me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely no problem. So in your memoir, you mentioned life growing up in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And you mentioned that your mom was Jewish and that your dad was a devout atheist. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) It it can be such a thing. Exactly right. (laughs) Which is a very interesting upbringing. So I just want to kind of know. I know that religion is a very touchy subject, but we Uh talk about that a lot here on the Vibe Selection podcast. So how did your parents' religious beliefs, you know, kind of shape your outlook on religion or even spirituality? That's so interesting that you ask. Yeah, it's a complicated sort of question, as you just sort of summary there. Um, Yeah, my mother's family, they're kind of secular Jews. You know, they're not they haven't been very religious historically. And my dad, I think, was raised pretty hardcore Methodist. Um, but some went somewhere in his you know, early twenties went through a, a a transition. He said, you know, if that's what religion is, because whatever he was dealing with, I think it was the the Methodist missionaries who were building a hospital in the Congo, which he he selected as alternate service for the Korean War conflict, you know. And he came back from that saying, if that's religion, I want no part of it. You know, and and I'm sure it has everything to do with, you know, church administration and nothing to do with spirituality. But he just, you know, he said, I said, I'm done with that. So because of that, we were kind of raised, my brother and I were kind of raised with no particular existential dilemma. You know, it was sort of like never a question. It was never an issue. It was never a problem. We never attended church. You know, I went to, I've been to churches and been with friends of mine and I've, I've certainly been to synagogue a couple of times and uh, was never bar mitzvah or anything like that. Oh no! So it was, you know, I've always been aware of it and I've, you know, been aware of comparative religion studies and I've been curious about it and I've read books and read sacred texts and all this kind of stuff. And it just, it's just never a problem. So it's not something that I spent a lot of time uh, worrying about or practicing. I just kind of live my life and, you know, you take the good stuff like do unto others. And uh, mm-hmm. if you live by that, things tend to work out pretty fine, you know. Right. So, I mean, if you're raised with good morals, essentially, it really shouldn't matter in regards to religion or what belief, so. religious belief system. Yeah, I think so. It's just sort of like, like you say, you know, uh, the, those moral values kind of, they're kind of universal for, for any religious practice, you know, it's just like, you know, don't be a jerk and uh, right. treat people the way you'd like them to treat you. And again, it works out pretty good most of the time, you know. Right, exactly. I mean, the reason why I like to touch on this topic specifically is also because we live in a very religious nation here in the United States. Like religion is a huge thing. Like you can't even be president unless you're a Christian. That's how diehard we are out here about it. That's true. (laughs) Yeah. And growing up, you know, I was born in Chattanooga, Tennessee, you know, in the 1960s, if you can imagine that. So in Mm -hmm. the deep south, which is a very polarized uh, community down there, very hardcore, very, uh, very Christian, very, it's just the Bible belt, you know, what they call the Bible belt. So sort of not being of that tradition and not being of that, you know, society, it was a little ostracizing, you know, which is kind of one of the reasons why as soon as I turned 17 and was off to college, like I'm out, I'll see you guys later. Right. Uh, It's been fun. (laughs) Enjoyed it. Uh, I still have great, great friends down there, but you know, it's not for me. I needed a bigger, more cosmopolitan environment to thrive in. So that's, that's where I headed to a bigger city. 
Right, exactly. Well, I love your outlook on that. So I know your parents separated and you went to live with your father and you mentioned that your dad was more hyper-focused on his sexual relationships with women and his new wives. I believe he married three other times. That's and right. So, yeah, I, I have I have all four of his divorces over here in a folder <laughs> next to my desk. I got oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> and so you did mention kind of his him hyper focusing more so on women kind of affected your self esteem growing up. So was there something that you did to kind of help heighten that self esteem while you were growing up? And did you ever have a discussion with your dad in regards to this? Well, you know, I mean, yeah, my my dad and I had some extremely frank discussions about relationships in life, you know, later on in life. Uh, and I think that may have possibly been his, you know, if there's one character flaw, because my dad was an extremely good dude, extremely mm -hmm. solid guy. But if there was one flaw in his character, it would have to be that sort of like, you know, uh, being ruled by the hormones possibly and or mm -hmm. because of the, the product of his generation. Again, he was born in the 1930s in California. Mm -hmm. So in those days, you did not have a sexual relationship as with a, a, a date. You know, you married you married people. That's what you did. Right. right. So, you know, in order for him to sort of have a fulfilling, you know, uh, intimate life, he decided he needed to be married. And, mm -hmm. you know, when one marriage failed, he said, well, we can do that again, did it again and again and again. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, you know, I think the times have changed quite a bit. You know, if he were born a generation or two later, he might not have, have, have had the same sort of career path trajectory with, within regards to so many ex-wives. But uh, I do understand, you know, how he came to be that way. Um, as for my own self-esteem, that's a constant um, challenge that continues to this day. I was not very good at figuring out, you know, my place in the world as a younger person. It took me quite a bit longer of sort of, you know, discovering what I could do personally and professionally and, you know, finding my way and having success in life and relationships and business. And also, you know, uh, a little therapy now and again, it definitely helps, you know, sort of find who you are. Um, so I'm, I'm much more comfortable in my skin now than I ever have been previous, uh, which is not to say that I've got it figured out in any way, but Right. You know, yeah, that that sort of character flaw, if you can call it that, you know, and I don't think it's necessarily a flaw, you know, uh, hormones are something we all possess and we all deal with. Right. But, you know, his his way of dealing with it uh, was possibly not the the healthiest long term, you know, not that he was a giant philanderer or anything. I don't think I think he just tended <laughs> to marry people, you know, and, uh -huh. and irregardless of whether there was necessarily the best personality fit, you know, it was more. It was more uh, a marriage to sort of um, allow for the for the normal sexual relationship kind of aspect of life. So, again, a very interesting guy and a very solid guy. Uh, but if you had to point to one thing, you'd be like, eh, maybe that, maybe that. <laughs> you could have yeah. done some more work on. And later in life, he did. P.S. Yeah. He did later on. Well, you know, it's interesting because... You know, in today's society, uh, with the generation, the Gen Zers that are out here right now, things have changed a lot, especially, a lot. like you said, from your dad's generation, where it was sex, which should be with marriage. When now oh, we're in a society right. with social media and we see sex everywhere and women half mm -hmm. naked. And then, you know, a lot of these people on social media have only fans accounts. So right, sex right. is seemed as something very casual nowadays compared to then. And I also kind of feel like it it, it can affect your self-esteem a lot, too, you know, because you're seeing, you know, these depictions of these IG models and, you know, mm. they're very inflated. You know, they have the yes. large breasts and the big derrieres. And then yes. you see the guys, they have the athletic abs and, you know, they look <laughs> a certain way and they have to fit a certain aesthetic. And so I feel like our youth nowadays feels like they have to live up to that expectation. If I'm not perfect, you know, if I'm not able to get flown out by a rapper, if I don't have this, if I don't have that, mm -hmm. then it seems like it's affecting their self-esteem a lot. I think that's absolutely true. And I think 
partly that that's been true for a very long time because I remember, you know, in in back in my day, I hate to say stuff like that. Back in my day, you know, we we there was a there was a very famous movie star model named Bo Derek who had a movie mm. called Ten, and she was yes. the Ten. I remember she those like braids. Right, exactly right, which is cultural appropriation, which we don't need to get into at this point. But, <laughs> but you know, we can. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, of course. I'm, I'm just teasing. No, but, I know you are. You know, but but, but I, you have to put a pin in that because, you know, right. the white lady with braids is like, hmm, I'm not sure. But at right. the time, again, that was the frame of reference we had. You know, but there was always sort of that pressure, you know, and, you know, before Instagram, there were the, the covers of magazines and right. the television spokesmodels and all that kind of stuff. I think with... Uh, social media, it has accelerated. Mm-hmm. I think it's accelerated quite a bit. Like, you know, that was always a thing, sort of not not having, not feeling, uh, or and it was always the tar- target of, of advertisers too. Like, you know, you, you're not as strong or as pretty or as as right. athletically fit as this, as this model we have. So you need to buy this product, whatever exactly. this is. Right. You know, if it's a if if it's a vape pen or 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 a, a light beer or whatever they're selling, you know, that right. was the whole sort of thing. It's it's kind of working against your self esteem, but it's definitely accelerated now. And and as you say too, you know, the access to hyper sexualized imagery that that especially young people have today is much more prevalent and much more uh, uh, premature than it, than it ever used to be. Right. So, you know, like the, there are um, psychological and emotional uh, aspects that go along with all the raging hormones that, you know, that need to kind of be worked out together and need to be sort of going through a maturity process and you need right. to be able to make mistakes with people that are sort of your, your same level. And when you have this like, you know, hyper intensive, hyper sexualized, you know, very adult content coming to very young kids, you know, it can it can skew people's senses of reality. Like and just the I think kids are accessing pornography very, very young now. And sort of seeing, you know, that type of relationship portrayed in a way which is just never realistic, you know. Right. So they have unrealistic expectations about their bodies, about their sense of self. And, you know, it's it's a problem. It's a problem. And I don't think we've got that licked yet. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think that if we didn't live in a society that constantly suppressed talking about sex and understanding and learning how to and giving people the tools to understand more about their sexuality, which, you know, is everybody's own experience. Like you do have to learn about your own sex, sensuality, a sense of sensu- sexuality, excuse me, I can't even talk today <laughs> because, you know, it's different for everybody and people identify, you know, now we're living in a, you know, world where everybody has they they, we have the pronouns you know and the they thems and the she hers and the him theys and you know everything and so people are trying to find themselves in this society and i feel like over the years we've never really had any support for that so Mm -hmm. i feel like the reason for why our generation now is so hyper sexualized is because it's been told to them that, you know, you shouldn't have sex. Don't focus on that. Sex is bad is what it really seems like the message has been over the years. So now people are just like, they're out there about it. Cause you know, they're like, you know what? I'm tired of this. I'm just gonna go this direction will be super, you know, they're rebelling is what I'm pretty much sure. trying to get at here is because it, it's been it suppressed. Goes back to the, it goes back to the old Puritanism, you know, and the country was founded right. on Protestant Puritanism. You know, like you know, every sex is bad. Everything is bad. You know, right. Only you have to be, and, and, and you're, your physical biology, you know, is screaming to rebel against that. Like, you know, you know, biological beings want need and want to procreate because otherwise, you know, the species dies out. So you have this, you know, very stern, very strong, you know, institutionalized messaging that, that you know, of the Puritanism versus raging hormones. So, yeah, there's going to be an explosion of some sort, right? Right. If, you know, every time you repress something, it's going to squeak out another door somewhere, right. a window, you know, yes. a, a, an air conditioning vent. And yes. it comes out in some really twisted ways sometimes. Oh, yes. It's been suppressed <laughs> too hard. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. So... I know also in your book, there's in your in your youth, you've faced a lot of traumatic situations um, from, you know, you being in a um, 
all boys school. It was a private school. It used to be a military school and it was called Baylor school for boys. And it had strong Christian leanings. There we go again with that old religion. (laughs) And you said that, you know, at one particular point in time, you had a classmate that had pulled a gun out on you and that you were threatened with physical violence on a constant basis. How did you learn to deal with this? And how is it that you didn't kind of lose yourself in all of this chaos that you seem right. to kind of be surrounded in in your youth? Well, it, it's interesting, too, because you talk about uh, I have to be I have to be mindful when I speak about, you know, struggles that I had. You know, if I'm getting hazed and bullied at a private school, how right. bad really is my life? You know what I mean? Like I have food, I have clothes, I have shoes, I got shelter, like all my my wants and needs. You know, we're a very firmly <clears throat> working middle class family. I came from, my dad was a, a, a mechanical engineer, worked for the the government, the Tennessee Valley Authority. So, you know, so we weren't, we weren't these uh, uber rich kids I was going to school with. I was kind of a townie, you know what I mean? Like I was a local mm-hmm. a day student at this sort of ritzy boarding school. So there were kids there that were, whose parents were uh, uh, living in Saudi Arabia working for oil companies. Like there was one kid who, no doubt for his 16th birthday, got a new Lamborghini. That was his Ooh. car that they gave him as a 16-year-old. I'm like, wow, does that? Let's be nice. You know, and meanwhile, I, I'm, 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 I'm also, uh, I was actually riding my bike to school, but, but more for <laughs> fitness than, than for poverty, you know, but then when I had access to a car, it was my, my dad's, uh, used Datsun, uh, uh sedan, you know, with a, a 500 liter engine or whatever it was. So, mm-hmm. you know, so like I say, my, my struggles were, were of a certain level. They weren't, you know, it was nothing life threatening, but it was certainly, self-esteem threatening and you know occasionally it got things got physical or whatnot and i didn't do well with it it didn't go well like i said you know my my rebellion was you know at 17 years old as soon as i graduated like i'm out I'm, yeah. you know i'm getting as far away from here as possible um because i you know that that school that you mentioned was uh 100 male 98 christian mm-hmm. uh, i think there was one one other Jewish kid in my class of a hundred, you know, kind of mm-hmm. thing. Uh, when I was, when I first started that school, they graduated their very first African American student when I was there. I'm like, this wow. is not ancient history at all. You know what I'm saying? Like that's, we are that's, honestly, we are so backwards as a society. It's not even funny, man. <laughs> and it's, and it's still, it's still here way more than people think it is. You know, like we oh, think yeah. we're post Obama, we're post this out. I'm like, no, 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 right. No, no. That stuff is, is, is as entrenched as it ever, ever was, you know, but again, oh, yeah. you know, this is going back into you know, the deep South in the, in the seventies into the eighties, you know, when I was dealing with this kind of stuff, mm-hmm. but you know, I had to go, I had to go out in the world and I had to, mm-hmm. I went to, went to new, moved to new Orleans next because it was yeah. uh, the, and the reason I moved there was not because I had this great knowledge of the city. Mm-hmm. It was the largest, um, a population city of any of the schools that I got accepted to. Wow. So like, you know, there was an, I forget what the population of New Orleans is a million, million and a half, I think uh, metro area, maybe 2 million, but like I needed, I just know I needed a bigger pond to swim in. Like right. it wasn't, it wasn't going well for me in, in Tennessee. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't well received. I wasn't well tolerated. <laughs> uh, you know, I was like constantly trying to stay out of altercations with people. So, right. That's how I coped. I left. I left, you know. Yeah. You know, the peer pressure that you face growing up when, you know, you don't conform to, you know, certain belief systems that are taught in our society. Sometimes you have a harder time if you're not the jock, if you're not, you know, the 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 pretty boy, the pretty girl or whatever. It could be hard in school. (laughs) I remember like my freshman year. I actually went to a very small charter school and luckily I didn't face any hazing or bullying, but at times I definitely kind of felt like I was an outcast a little bit, mm, you yeah, know, they let you, they let you know, right. They let you know. Oh, definitely. You know, they, they have their indirect ways of ways of making you kind of feel <laughs> a certain type of way, <laughs> but I still hung with everybody. That was the thing about me though. I didn't really care what you were, whether you were the nerd or the weirdo or whatever. Right. Like I hung out with whoever I felt comfortable with and who received me well is, you know, that's how I rolled. 
<laughs> that's right. That's right. And as it should be, you know, equal opportunity. But, you know, the 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 school I went to was if you ever saw that movie Dead Poets Society, that could have been like a documentary about my school, except I was the kid who committed suicide at the end. That was me. Oh, no. it, was, it was not a great it was not a great sort of scene. Oh, gosh. Um, but it, it, it was. Uh, and the th- but the thing was, so I had people ask, so, so why? Why'd you go there? Why'd you go there? And I said, well, the reason we went there is because the the public schools in Chattanooga at the time were kind of in a shambles. It was like it was mm. even worse, if you can imagine. So the, the idea was to sort of focus on the education and give myself, you know, or my parents trying to give myself uh, um, an opportunity to learn without all the, you know, all the the noise and the and the distraction you know so and and from that point of view it kind of worked out like i learned how to i learned how to go to school that's what i learned how to do like you learn how to read books and take tests right that's what you kind of learn in a place like that but it's uh you know just the fact that it was an all boys school means that you know i'm under socialized for dealing with half of the human beings in the world Right. Because, you know, in those formative years, this is grades um, 7 through 12, and I was there at grades 8 through 12, you know, you're learning, you're just going through puberty and you're coming in, you're learning how to right. how to talk to, 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 you know, people that you're interested in romantically and, and learn how to date and learn how to, all that stuff. Didn't do any of that, you know, like it wasn't, right. wasn't available. You had to go um, to other places to try to find that. And it was, it's, 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 what's the word it, it's stilting you know it 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 retards your your development in a way you know that that school incidentally by the way went co-ed about four years after i left because i i think they just weren't uh. able to sustain the business model you know they we needed more people to come pay their tuition you know right and it's hard when you have an you know, young boys with raging hormones that would like to, you know, be amongst other women, you know, young girls, you know, it's very hard, like you said. Or whoever they're interested in, you know what I mean? Right, right, exactly. And so that kind of also leads me into another question that I had for you. So I know in your book, you talk about, you know, this uh, relationship that you had with a pop singer, an older pop singer that lived in London. And you talked about how, you know, you shall remain nameless. Oh, man, we can't just get a can I get an initial? (laughs) Can I just get a little initial? (laughs) Uh, You have to use your imagination. It's more fun. that. Oh, darn. Okay, so you discuss how, you know, she asked you to go to London to live with her. And, you know, you leave all your things behind. You leave them at your dad's house. You go across the pond. You land, you know, over at her house. And she's got to go on tour. And so she leaves you with her 13-year-old son. Right. And during your your stay there, it seemed like, you know, you said that she constantly tried to kind of hide her relationship with you because, you felt like she felt ashamed of the fact of the age difference. I believe there was That's a right. 10 year age difference. That's so right. uh-huh. how were relationships for you being a rock star? And what was uh-huh. this situation like for you? What being the, the kept boy, the boy toy. Yes, that, the that boy toy. I, it was funny. I, you know, I didn't, it didn't register with me initially because why would it, you know, it's like, I, I was, I, I, my relationships to me are a personal sort of one-on-one situation mm-hmm. but to her and to other people in the public eye and and p.s you know she was in the public eye at that time she's not very much anymore you know mm-hmm. it was a long time ago but you know you have to think about this stuff a little bit more and and at the time i was a uh, publicity officer for her record label so i was professionally thinking about what things meant in the public eye you know that was sort of my job but still somehow it never occurred to me like you know um that it should have been on the down low for any particular reason. Uh, you know, I think, you know, if you were trying to spin a media story, you know, good for her. She got a, she got a young guy, you know, but <laughs> uh, I don't know. She, she just seemed to be very squeamish about it and, and didn't want to be public about it at all. And I was like, okay, you know, it made no difference to me one way or the other. I was in a country where I didn't know anybody and I had right. no, no roots, no, no anything. So, it, it was a little off-putting, like if she would have family come in from out of town, I would have to go away. Like I'd have to go, you know, stay oh, at a wow. hotel for a week one time. I remember that. I was like, that's a little, that's feels, that doesn't feel great, you know. Um, but there were other 
issues with the relationship. That wasn't even the biggest one. That was just sort of one of the ones that you could kind of put, put a finger on and say, like, this felt tangible, you know. Wow. And so, I mean, what was your relationship like with her young son? Because so when you landed, was it like, hey, I got to go on tour. Can you watch him? Did you have time to kind of get to know him? Yeah, no, basically, no. I was like, you know, I was kind of like the, I was like an au pair, you know, like a live-in mm. sort of like housekeeper, babysitter kind of thing, sort of, but de facto, it kind of turned into that sort of situation. Uh, and at the time, again, like, you know, I was sort of uh, looking at the practice of reality, like, oh, she's got to go travel for six weeks or whatever. And I'm home. I got nothing to do. I can't work over there. You know, I'm, right. I'm a, 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 on a tourist visa. So, you know, right. yeah. I'll hang out the house. I'll feed the kid. The kid's a good kid, you know. He's, he's a good kid. So we got along just fine. Um, but uh, again, there were there were other other problems. <laughs> so what were way. those there other were problems? problems? It just it, emotionally, it wasn't a good fit. You know, I, I think that it's very easy to. This was a long distance relationship kind of thing mm -hmm. that was that we were in for I want to say maybe about a year before we decided to live in the same city mm -hmm. you know so when you have a situation like that and this isn't this has nothing to do with the pop stardom you know this this has everything to do with sort of like um building a fantasy in your head of what this other person is like right on on from both directions you know like you know we we both sort of had this idea, uh, okay, so if we get into the same city, you know, you really, you, you only talk to this person on the phone, uh, you know, a certain amount of time per day, but you don't really get a full sense of what they are, you know, how they are in traffic, you know, if they got road rage, you know, you don't know these things until right. you sort of get in the, in the room. Uh, and then once reality sort of strikes, uh, I think it can be very eye opening and, and that can either be a good thing or it can be a bad thing in this case it didn't didn't work out well for either one of us yeah so and the other thing too was i was coming from i'm sorry go ahead oh no worries um i was just going to say so do you really felt like felt like she wanted this for a long-term situation or she already had her mind made up about the fact that she just wanted you for a short period of time and she was probably going through a midlife crisis that's interesting. I can't say for sure. I'm not, I don't know. I think that she probably had some idea that it was going to be longer rather than shorter because otherwise, why would you have somebody come all the way over to another country? Right. But again, I don't think it was based on good reality, realistic information that she had in her head. She right. had an idea of what I was and I had an idea of what she was. And when we got in the same room together for a period of time, we both realized that didn't really match. Right. The other thing I was going to say was I was coming from, uh, at the time, I was working for uh, Epic Records. I was a publicist for Epic Records. So I was, you know, I was a junior executive over there. I had a, my expense account. I had an Amex card. So uh -huh. I was kind of on top of my game. I was kind of right. a, you know, a, a little miniature big deal. <laughs> and when I got to England, I was an unemployed nothing, you know. Wow. And what that can kind of do to your state of mind and your, and your self-esteem, you know, compounds itself if then you're in a relationship where things are not going well at all. I kind of started to think that I was uh, in some, in more of a dire situation than I probably would have had I gone over there like with a full-time job waiting for me or something like that. You know what I mean? Right. And so, okay, speaking of public, being a public Speaking of publicists, I know, like yeah. you just mentioned, you were a publicist. I What's was. also very interesting is your love for music started not only with your mom, but what really got you in the game was your mom had a friend who was a publicist that worked for a record label that would get LPs. That's and right. the LPs the vinyl that days. Yeah, the good old vinyl days. You know, they're bringing <laughs> back the vinyl days, though. Oh, they are. I'm noticing. They really are. Yeah, Great. those, are, I mean, there's so many classic albums that are on vinyls you know right. and it's a, and it's nice that they're bringing it back now so you can listen to all those wonderful albums and so you get these lps okay and you get the exclusive ones and she had a couple of duplicate ones and right. you know you were listening to all of them and then eventually you started calling up radio stations because <laughs> you got hip to the fact that there are some lps that they get that they do not play on the uh, radio that's right <laughs> I, did, I did a little math. That's right. Oh, yeah. So 
I know that your mom kind of got you interested in it, but what really made you think to yourself, okay, I really want to become a musician because you didn't Mm. really play instruments as a child. I, I, right. I took I took music lessons. I dabbled with guitar for a minute. I dabbled with viola for a half a second. And I mm-hmm. dabbled in piano for about a semester of junior high. I kind of dug the piano, but then when I had to go to find a private teacher, there was a lady down the street who taught. It was very like, you know, like an, she was like an, an older lady with a ruler that would hit you she wouldn't really hit you but that was the feeling you know it was like ah this is not fun yeah right yeah yeah that kind of thing like corporal punishment kind of piano lessons and i was like no no that's not for me so so yeah I, I was just a fan a fan of music and also you know as a teenager and especially as an isolated teenager which i certainly was you know your fantasy life you know music is a very emotional a medium so like you can yes. live out an entire fantasy life just listening to albums record albums right you know and just sort of imagining things in life would would be so great if we did this and the other thing and i decided that you know that was something i'd like to do because i i enjoyed listening so much i thought maybe i would enjoy making it as well but it took me you know yeah i went through the whole what you're talking about with the 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 whole arc of 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 finding all these free uh, promo albums from the radio stations you know i did all that for a few years before i decided to try the bass guitar as a senior in high school i didn't pick it up till i was 17 years old and see if that would be something that i would actually do and for some reason that came to me quite naturally and it was at a time when I was ready to receive that information. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like you have to be ready to receive information when it comes to you. And right. I remember seeing Rick James play uh, live on television on this old program called the midnight special. Oh, Ricky James. Uh, right. And he did this song called you and I, uh-huh. and it's, it's a four note bass like bound. And it takes, it only takes two strings of a bass guitar to do it. And mm-hmm. there was a buddy of mine at my high school who had a, a bass that I think maybe he, he made or something. It only had two strings, like two strings were broken and missing, <laughs> but it had the two strings that I needed to play, to pick out by ear that bass line by Rick James. Right. And I sat down and I taught myself to play. Ding, 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 ding. I was like, <laughs> Wait a minute. I think maybe I could figure this out, you know? So <laughs> then that turned into like, you know, uh, saved up my dishwashing money from a summer and, and, <laughs> and bought a used Fender bass, which I still have. It's right here, by the way. I still have uh-huh. it 40 years later. Um, and my dad said, you know, what do you want for your birthday? Because this is the beginning of the school year. It was also my birthday. And I said, I want bass lessons. <laughs> That's what I want. Bass lessons. So I had a buddy of mine who was a year ahead of me in high school, but he'd already been in bands and he knew how to play. He's the guy I bought the used bass from. And he charged my dad $15 a week for an hour wow. lesson. And, wow. uh, and, and here we are, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm the, uh, you, you, the, the camera you're looking at behind me here. The, this is the, the, the co-op apartment house that I bought with money earned playing that bass. Wow. You know, yeah. Who knew? Who right. Knew? Who would have known? You know, it is so it, it's interesting because, you know, when I listen to the radio nowadays, music, the music that they play is so repetitive. Mm-hmm. And I just think about how there is so many artists out here with so many incredible songs that are not able to get pushed onto the radio. And okay. now we also have it where, you know, no one's buying albums anymore. Mm-hmm. And so artists are making money off of streaming but really they're only getting right they're only getting a very small portion of it and i was actually recently listening to an interview that snoop dogg had did actually uh yesterday Mm -hmm. and he was talking about how the billion dollar streaming you know uh, uh you know streams that they're getting for some of these songs it's not accumulating to the money so he was explaining how back then you know he can make he can sell a million copies and it could be, it could sell for $9.99 and he's getting Mm -hmm. $9 million and well, everybody's getting their cut first. And then he's still coming out with a lot of money, but nowadays it's not like that. And it's interesting how a lot of record companies have kind of 
allowed a lot of these streaming services to lowball the artists when they're the ones that are putting in all of the work, right? So what are your well, thoughts about this whole streaming service controversy as a musician I, yourself? Right, right. Well, I, it's, it's, I have a very interesting perspective on that because uh, like our friend Calvin Brodus, a.k.a. Snoop Dogg, you know, I've been <laughs> around in the, in the before times and the after times. I was here before streaming and after streaming, so I know what it means to sell a million records. Not that I've sold, but I'm... I mean, I, when I worked at the record label, you know, um, I worked with, I have platinum records on my wall here. I don't either I have to turn the camera to, sh you know, I have back from those days for right. artists that I work with. So back in those days, uh, a, a, a new artist's uh, royalty rate with a major label was about 6%, 6%. Mm. So if... And and out of that six percent, all of your production costs, your recording costs, your video costs, your tour support costs, that all came out of your six percent. Right. Right. So that means ninety-four percent of the you know if it, in those days I don't know what the wholesale price of a CD was. Wholesale was maybe ten dollars, and they went for fifteen in the store or something like that. Whatever that was, so let's, you know, ten dollars was it was a nice round figure, right? Right. So of the ten dollars that you're making, you know, that means uh, what's uh, what's six percent of it? Six uh, percent of ten dollars, uh, sixty cents is coming your way as an artist. Yeah, you know, some, something like that. I ain't got my calculator out, but that sounds right. about right. Right. <laughs> you know, and so you know, the math. Mathematics were always very skewed in heavily favor of the labels back in those days. Right. Uh, artist deals were not good. You had to sell a few million. You had to become a Snoop Dogg before you were going to see any serious record company money. And a few people did. You know, yeah. like uh, I worked at Epic Records, which we, we had an artist uh, named Michael Jackson. Yes. The, the, the late, great Michael Jackson. Late, great Michael Who Jackson. You might have heard of him. And he yeah. has the top-selling vinyl album of all time, which is an album called Thriller. In 1982, it came out, I think, right? So yes. I worked at Epic Records when the, when the album Bad came out. And I got to see his contract. Mm. Like the, I went up to business affairs upstairs where I worked and I said, let me, let me see Michael's contract. Cause it mostly what we wanted to see was his signature. Cause it's like an autograph. Cause it was like, wow, look at this Michael's signature. Right. <laughs> uh, but this, so this is a guy who just had the top selling record of all time, of mm -hmm. all time. He's in the mm -hmm. biggest, um, uh, bargaining position of any artist ever in history, arguably. Right. Right. He was able to negotiate a royalty rate of any guesses, any guesses. Three uh, percent. Well, he was starting at six, so it had oh, to go okay. up from there, right? Okay. So well, ten percent. He got up to twenty. He got up to twenty percent. So wow. that means of every ten dollar CD that got sold, he got two. Wow. And out of that two, he had to pay for Quincy Jones. Mm -hmm. He had to pay for the studio. He had to pay right. for the videos. Come, right. Came out of his two. You know, I'm like, right. this is a guy who's making bank. He's keeping the lights on of the company, mm -hmm. and they're taking eight dollars out of every ten. Oh, yeah. And, you know, so, so many artists. Yeah. 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 So many so, artists have talked about this. That's right. You know, you have Prince that that spoke out against the record company uh, the, with the, with Slave written on his face. <laughs> yeah. Remember that? Yeah. <laughs> that, was all so, for the, that was all for the record company. That was all for the record company. Yeah. And, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, it's also kind of what's also crazy to me is that it seems like a lot of these artists. OK, you know, Michael Jackson, since we were discussing him, right. how for a really long time, well, a couple of years before his death and even during his death, he really wasn't able to sell a lot. People were not really buying the music and not really buying his concert sales. And this is Michael Jackson, one of mm -hmm. the biggest artists on the entire planet. And it's crazy to me to see how a lot of these artists, Whitney Houston, Prince, Michael Jackson, right. when they die, it seems like they're worth more in death than they were in mm -hmm. life. That's right. And it's really sad. It is. It is because they've got a trademark and they have people that, you know, then market their estates. You know, this happened, the same thing happened with Elvis when he died. I think Elvis, was, yeah. you know, he sold his entire publishing, his entire publishing company to RCA for two million dollars or something and this is the guy that had more hits than you know anyone in the business right and when he passed away uh that's when priscilla took over elvis presley enterprises epe mm -hmm. and that became like a 50 million dollar a year company yeah 
you know what I'm saying? Like it, it became like this gigantic uh, industry, you know, we're managing the trademark. And the same thing is true of Michael, of Prince, of Marilyn Monroe. Like there's some, there's some yeah. trademark companies that manage these, these trademarks. And it's, uh, it's a heck of a way to do business, man. I'm not, it gives me the creeps thinking about it, you know. It is very creepy. So, I mean, what are your thoughts about that? Do you feel like the artist should get more from streaming sales? Do you think that there is a way for these record companies to negotiate with these streaming services so that uh, everybody's able to eat fairly? They, here's the thing, though. They did. They mm. did. All the major labels and right now. Now they're consolidated to three, the big three. They all got together and negotiated uh, with Spotify. So they got their settlement. And at the same time, I forget what they, it was some creative accounting where they're also like shareholders in the corporation as well. Mm. So they keep the royalty rate low, but they can take all the profits from Spotify and distribute it to their shareholders without Mm. having to compensate any artists. Wow. So, you know, when, when, when the whole Napster thing happened and the MP3 thing happened, mm-hmm. I, I watched this happen in real time. And I, and I watched the, the major labels all in their arrogance saying, well, they can't bootleg our recordings because we own this intellectual property. We own the mm-hmm. trademarks. I was like, you know, dudes, you don't realize, and mostly dudes, I had to say dudes because it was mostly men at that time. I was like, this genie is out of the bottle. Like, you mm-hmm. don't know. They, they were so slow getting on board with the whole digital situation that it almost almost it did kill most of the companies that's why they had to all consolidate and sort of like you know there's only three major labels now they used to be six or seven yeah. you know but now they've all kind of shut it up and now they become like clearing houses for for selling their back catalog basically that's what they do yeah and i wasn't sad to see it happen i was like no you guys have been abusing the system for so long and your arrogance kind of got got ahead of you so i don't feel bad for the labels i do feel bad for the artists you know but that's right. kind of always been the case right you know even back in the 50s you know they would sign a, a, a rhythm and blues artist and it's like right, here's we're gonna give you a brand new cadillac right you know <laughs> Yeah, buy a car for a thousand dollars, two thousand dollars. You know, meanwhile they're making millions off the record sales, right? Right. It's a long story. It's a yeah. long story. And a lot of these artists, they really didn't understand the business part of That's the true. record industry. So a lot of people got lowballed when it came to that. I mean, like you said, Elvis Presley, and then there's been countless other rock and roll hall of famers that had been lowballed that unfortunately passed away broke mm-hmm. um, due to the fact that they didn't really understand their contracts. And a lot of them were kind of forced into it. I mean, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity that you sometimes can get with getting these contracts. So most people would take the opportunity, right? That's right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. It's this or nothing. You know, you have a chance or you have zero chance. He's like, all right, right, I'll take the chance. Right. And you you have to sign this awful contract, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It happens. It happens a lot then. I'm sure it's still happening in different ways now, too. Oh, yeah. And so it seems like nowadays a lot of the artists, they're making a lot of their money off of touring because now people are not buying records. And it's unfortunate because, you know, with vinyls, with LPs and stuff like that, EP, excuse me. Um, You know, before it's like, if you wanted to put on a song that you really like to listen to, you could just put it in, you know, your, your, your record box, your record box, your cassette player, and just listen to it over and over and over again. But what I think about is what happens when these streaming services die out? And Mm -hmm. some other nerd decides to create something else for people to listen to music to. Then what happens? Because a lot of the great music, you know, because what most people do is they create playlists for a lot of their uh, favorite songs. But what happens when, you know, artists aren't selling, they're not, you know, creating any records or CDs, these streaming services go down. Mm -hmm. What outlet do you have to listen to your favorite songs? And I hate that, you know? Right. It, it, that kind of remains to be seen because it's hard to predict where the technology is going to go because it was a technology shift. MP3s right. were a technology shift. The streaming was another technology shift. Right. So, you know, AI is going to be the next technology shift, by the oh, way. Yeah. It's starting to happen now. Yeah. Uh, so, like, there's a new... Uh, somebody sent me the other day is a new Paul McCartney song. I'm like, is it, is, <laughs> is it new? I don't know. I, it's supposed to be AI generated. Um, insane. It, yeah, and that's kind of what the what the Writers Guild strike, one of their sticking points right now is about mm-hmm. AI, you know, because mm-hmm. you can 
put in a prompt or two to chat GBT and you can have a new script for the new law and order episode, right. you know, at a touch of a button, right. not going to be quite as good, but it's going to be probably good enough. You know what yeah. I mean? So they're trying to figure out ways to have these things compensated and, or, you know, regulated in some way. And, and I wish them the best with it. Cause it's going to, it's a big challenge right now to try to figure out how this is going to go. Right. Um, it's exciting new technology because you can right. do all kinds of new creative things with it, but exactly, you, you know, I don't know if you remember, uh, uh, record sampling, you know, this was yes. back in the early hip hop days, you know, they, mm -hmm. all, all the rappers were using James Brown samples. Mm-hmm. And you didn't have to pay for them initially, you know, just like right. you would just put on a James Brown record and talk over it and right. say, that's my song. I'm like, eh, kind of, I mean, yeah, you have, you have a message, right? But you remember, James. remember James Brown? Hey, you, you know, know that man? <laughs> right. Who set up the, the entire groove and created right. music. Remember, okay. they give him some of the money, you know, exactly. And that took, that took a few years of litigation to work that out, to work out a sampling rate, you know, rate of pay for how much you were going to, give to James Brown the next time you use one of his records out of whole cloth. Right. Uh, and it changed hip hop too, because they stopped sampling as much. They started to do a lot more sound alikes and, you know, starting to create some of their own tracks and vibes and right. beats, which is good. But, yeah. you know, so AIs, that's kind of where the juncture we are right now. We're trying to figure out, you know, how is this going to be monetized, where it's going to be controlled, how it's going to be legal. And right. then hopefully some, wonderfully creative people will create something that we never could have imagined before. That's, that would be, that's the upside. Right. Right. Exactly. I mean, so it seems like, you know, a lot of the, a lot of technology they're getting around legal loopholes within the music industry At with the, the moment, streaming yeah. services right. and, you know, this whole AI now they have AI Drake. <laughs> it's crazy. Right. And AI right. Drake sounds great, but now people are going to start buying AI Drake and not buying as much as the real Drake. Mm -hmm. And he's not profiting off of his own, you know, self, his doppelganger, which is really sad in the end, you know. Well, that's but you're you're right about that, but I think that's what's going to happen. Like if you're going to if you're going to market this as a Drake record, whether Drake sang on it or not. Right. You know, eventually you're going to have to pay Drake cuz it's his name on the on the exactly. outside, you know, it's uh but that's that's going to be it's going to take a little while and it's going to take some some legal time to work that stuff out. Right. Uh, it'll happen. It'll happen. I'm not I'm not optimistic. I think a lot of people are getting nervous about it prematurely, I think. Mm. I could be wrong, you know, I could be out of business tomorrow, but the the thing that works out for me is that with all of the technology and computer generated and MIDI, this, that, and the other thing, you know, uh, electronic music or whatever, there still comes an artist, you know, every few years, like a Lizzo mm -hmm. or an Anderson Pack or uh, Bruno Mars, you know, and there's bass guitar on those records. They have a mm -hmm. retro sound. You know, somebody's right. playing a Fender bass, which is what I, I do for a living, you know, and it's just like every time I hear one of those records, I'm like, this is the new sound. I'm like, that's the new old sound. But, but thank <laughs> okay. God, because, you know, right. now I'm I'm employed for another year, you know. That right. Could... Exactly. So, I mean, what was life like for you? You felt like on the road, like what was your what did it feel like when you were finally able to have your first run of the mill on stage performing with an artist? What was that like for you? Uh, it was thrilling, you know, <clears throat> again, sort of making music, you know, if you've developed this fantasy life in your, in your mind as a, as a kid listening to, to records, you know, that thinking like, this is going to be what I'm going to do. It's going to be great, you know, and then when you finally get to do it, it might take a few years, you know, but it's great. You know, one, one of the first big quote unquote professional things I did was when I was in college in New Orleans, um, in those days, Bo Diddley, who's rock and roll hall of famer, one of the architects of rock and roll would he would come to a town just by himself with his guitar and mm -hmm. he would use a local band for his show and through a series of whatever knew this person knew that person knew the other thing i got hired to back him up three different times when he came through new orleans you know and this is a guy who like literally invented junk 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 in the terms mm -hmm. of rock and roll the bow diddly beat you know and here I am, I'm a kid, I don't know how old I was, 19, 20, something, could barely play, could barely hold my instrument, you know, but but well enough to be able to to play with Bo. And it's thrilling, just thrilling, you know, kind of you feel like, oh, 
my dreams, they're coming true, you know. Right. <laughs> it took me later to realize, you know, how little I knew. And actually, as a, a much, much older, not much older, 26-year-old, I finally went went to music school. I said, all right, if I'm going to do this, I need to really learn what I'm doing, you know, and try to figure it out professionally. Um, but the initial rush of it, you know, you start to get some very early glimpses of it. You're like, oh, no, this is good. This is fun. <laughs> this is going well. More of this, please. Right. So I know you talked about one particular story when you were on the road about, well, you've actually talked about this a few times in the book about being fired and how so many times (laughs) in one particular instance, it was a pop diva who, you know, I I know you don't like to name names like that, but can I, can I get an initial on this one since I didn't get an initial on the first one? Who shall remain? Well, you know what? It's funny. I I don't, I don't know which firing you're talking about yet. I've been fired so many times. So you're going to Well, this one was with the pop diva who had a husband. If Uh I, what goes through my mind and you don't have to confirm this, but I, I feel like it might be (laughs) Tina Turner. Oh, I wish. Oh, oh no, I've never God, played with I'm Tina. Wrong. <laughs> she is the one of my all-time idols and one of my very first idols because my mother had the album I Can Tina Turner Live at Carnegie Hall. Wow. So I grew up that? listening to Proud Mary and going like, oh, that's great. You know, yeah. no, I wish. I, w- <laughs> I would have been so heartbroken if I'd have been fired from Tina's band. No, I've never worked with her. <laughs> But you just say when you describe this particular scenario about yeah. how for any particular reason, you know, this particular pop singer would just kind of lose her stuff, whether the food was too cold or yeah. the shoe wasn't right or whatever. Fire it the was. bass player. <laughs> Fire the bass player. Fire so the trombone as, player. Right, exactly. So as a musician, yeah. should you do this for the love of the money? Or should you do this because you have a passion for it? And what are your ways to kind of stay afloat financially being a musician since you never uh, know when you're going to get fired? That's right. Well, you, you what you do know is you're going to get fired. Right. Uh, no, it, financially, this financial security as a musician, there is none. If you can do anything else to make money, do that because, right. you know, trying to make make it make money as a musician is just that's just a long time tough road for everybody um and a, a very few select few do make it and some some people do make it an embarrassing living at it but uh i heard this analogy uh the other day it's like you know what that person most most of those people are is the people at the state fair who are right. walking around carrying the giant teddy bear oh, oh yeah <laughs> what happens is at the beginning of the day you know the the guy who who is running the the ring toss game or the, the you know put the ball in the basket game says you know all right he he makes he says you just get one ball in i'll give you the the giant teddy bear so he makes sure that somebody wins the giant teddy bear first thing in the day so the rest of the day that person is walking around the fairgrounds basically is an advertisement saying look you could win the giant teddy bear too right, right. So all the other people, all the other musicians, they were all walking around thinking like, yeah, we can win a giant teddy bear. We can all win. Everybody, I saw one, I saw one person with the teddy bear, so we can all win, right? That's mm-hmm. kind of the idea. And it's just, it's just not true. You know, it's a, you yeah. know, it takes a, a lot of, a lot of hours, a lot of skill, a lot of time. Um, but that said, you know, what I did was I, uh, I mentioned it before, I went to music school. I said, it, it, you know, I recognized kind of early on, if I'm going to do this professionally, and I, I first off need to diversify my portfolio, as it were. I need to be not only a, a rhythm and blues bass player. I need right. to be a pop bass player. I need to be a rock bass player. I need to be able to do country gig or do, a, you know, anything like sort right. of, you have to diversify your skill set. You have to diversify mm-hmm. your 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 tastes, right? Because uh, there's there's wonderful music in just kind of every genre, and there's also bad music in every genre. And then also, so you have to develop your 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 craft. You know, so I had to go to music school. I'd been playing probably close to ten years by the time I went to school, and I knew, you know, I'm playing certain. You know, you play on a blues gig, you know, you're playing this scale, but you don't know what the name of it is. 
Right. So the music school is telling you, okay, that's a Mixolydian scale. It's built off the five chord of the, of the C major scale. You know, you start putting names to faces to things and start having tools to be able to, I was at the time was just starting to learn to read music, for instance, you know, right. which is a skill I'm still working on. I'm still not great at it, but it's I've never been able to. It's, it's so hard. It is. <laughs> Kudos to people that catch on to it. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and I worked at it a long time. And, and the right. more you do it, the more gigs that I do now that are reading gigs, you know, and now when somebody throws a score down in front of me, I don't, I used to panic. I'm like, oh my God, this is, I can't do this. <laughs> the score. Now, I don't panic, but I just kind of go like, I get a little, a little hot under the collar. I'm like, okay, all right, what do we got here? What do we got here? Let me, let me try to work it out. You know, do we have the audio for this instead? I can learn yeah, by here. You know, or both. Audio, video of the conductor. Can I watch the conductor cam right. so I can see what's happening? You know, learn, learn the parts. <laughs> but I, in developing my, um, my physical, practical skill sets and widening that as well. Well, then I became employable in more and more venues right. so that I can come in and sub on a Broadway show or I can, you know, get my charts together on my iPad and go sub on a wedding gig or whatever. Like, you know, certainly more opportunities become available just because you've got more possibilities. Right. And in that way, you can kind of cobble together a career. You know, there's no one act that's paying all of my rent or my mortgage, you know. It's always a combination of, of different people and, like I said before, a, a diverse portfolio of clients that you build up over a long period of time, word of mouth, show up on time, be prepared, have a nice attitude, and they'll get recommended to the next person. You know, it's, just, right. it's a very one foot in front of the other kind of journey for me. And it's, I've been doing it for a long time. You know, I, I, I know that when the phone doesn't ring in February because there are no gigs, I don't think to myself, well, the career's over. Right. I go like, no, no, it's winter. It's slow. You know, uh -huh. concerts happen in the summer and I, I don't panic. And hopefully I've saved up a couple of nuts for the winter like a squirrel. And uh, <laughs> it, it all works out. You know, over time, you learn how to sort of cope with these things. Yeah. And you know what? That gets me to another question that just kind of popped in my mind, which is, you know, during the pandemic, um, mm -hmm. It took a lot of people out of the, you know, the job force. I mean, from uh, medical workers to, you know, restaurant people to yeah. the tech world, everybody got hit. And the, the people that most people didn't really realize really were impacted by it were musicians. Mm -hmm. And so I remember, you know, with unemployment, it was only for people that worked in, you know, your average blue collar jobs. That's right. But people didn't realize there's also musicians that are out of gigs and stuff like that. And so I remember unemployment, they started to allow musicians to start collecting unemployment and even just business owners, because for business owners, if you your doors had to close down, you had no means of income either. And with people being laid off, they're not going out and buying any of your products. So for you during this time, how were you able to stay afloat? Yeah, that that was that was tough for everybody. That was really right. tough for everybody. Yeah, what you're talking about the allowing freelancers and musicians to start collecting unemployment, for instance, you know, I was never able to navigate that system successfully. Mm. I was never able to prove to them that I made any money. Meanwhile, uh what 60 70 percent of my income is 1099 work it's right. all you know paid in cash 1099 you're responsible for your own taxes so in terms of you know the government what they what they're used to you know you, unemployment insurance is based off of w-2 jobs where they're taking tax withholdings and that kind of thing right so because i had subbed on a broadway show right before the pandemic, this is uh, the show called Ain't Too Proud, The Life and Times of the Temptations mm -hmm. uh, on Broadway. Uh, and that was a W-2 job. So I, I played, I don't even know, like three or four performances only. But because there was a W-2 in the system, mm -hmm. I got a, a an unemployment check for $100 a week, $125 a week, I think. Ain't that and a I darn like, shame. Right? And then, but then on top of that, there was an extra stipend, you know, there was an extra, uh, what was $600. it? $600. Right. For a period of time. Right. So that kind of kept the lights on for that. I was never able to get above that $125. Mm -hmm. 
which is a shame. Unemployment is just such a shame. It's like you could work a job and be laid off that paid you $70,000 a year. And no matter mm. how much money you make, the max is 1800 At least that's what it is in California. And I mean, right. with everything being so costly, that was nothing to anybody. So that's kind of why they implemented that extra $600. So, you know, I know there was a lot of controversy where people were saying, well, it's not fair that, you know, there's people that have to actually go to their jobs and we're not getting paid mm. an extra stipend and we yeah. deserve it and blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, no one wanted to be out of a job. No one That's wanted right. to have to go to unemployment. I mean, it was a complete nightmare, you know, for anyone that had to get on unemployment. And, you know, I people would rather much prefer to be able to go to their jobs and get paid, you know, whatever their salary was than to collect. But unfortunately, this is what a lot of people had to do. A lot of people had to bite the bullet and get on unemployment to stay afloat. It is what it is, you know? It is. And also the system was so overwhelmed. That's why I was right. able to like make my case and go through it and show all the paperwork. And I have a stack of 1099s here. I faxed it. I emailed it, you know, all this kind of stuff. I, I just, right. it was never, it never came up for review. And just like, it was, it was, it was a hard time for everybody because yeah. I sat home for about a year and a half before we were starting to do any kind of gigs, you know, and I took that time to do things like write, you know, finish writing the book that, that you're so kindly have been talking about this whole time. Uh, I did a lot of home recording, doing file sharing with other musicians who were also sitting home, you know, where I probably never could have afforded to get on my records, you know, um, pre pandemic, but they're all sitting home going like, yeah, I'll play. Yeah. Let me play. Let me play. <laughs> so I did a lot <laughs> of home time. recording. I probably, yeah, I probably did like 25 different tracks uh, during that time, finished the book, got the book out, you know, found ways to stay busy and, and engage. And then eventually, slowly, the private party work started to come back and then the concerts and then the theaters reopened. Um, but yeah, it was a long, a long, dark night, as they say. Yeah, but you know what was really cool? Um, one thing that I did see certain artists doing were they were doing uh, visual concerts where like mm, right. um, with the Oculus, with Metaverse, they had they created this Oculus. And I know at least I was invited to one um, album uh, release party through the Metaverse. And mm -hmm. I know a lot of artists were like they had a deal going on with like Ticketmaster or big ticket holder vendors. And they were setting up like a, a visual concert that people would pay and watch them right. just perform in an empty audience. But you would see them performing and doing their thing. That was another way. Right where some artists decided to some artists were able to stay afloat as well um were you ever invited on stage to kind of be part of the band for any of these artists while they were doing that at all or i, I never did that kind of thing i did some sort of isolation virtual uh recordings you know like we, we saw so many of these things on youtube where we like four boxes on the screen and the right. bass players up here and the drummers down there all in their own houses playing together you know that kind of thing yeah uh lockdown recording i did a few of those i did a couple of live streaming things but just like you know from the house kind of thing like nothing nothing i, I wasn't ever privy to any of those big sort of you know simulcast kind of streaming events like that and i don't think they really caught on i i think that they were interesting because everybody was stuck home you know right. but i don't you know, you know i don't know how much that's going to be an ongoing part of life right. now that people can get back out again i think they much prefer to just show up to the, at the venue and see the show live you know Right. And you can work out those technical difficulties because I'm sure it is a lot setting up, you know, all right. of that audio and stuff when you're going on to perform on stage. You know, it's a lot. Mm -hmm. And then the rehearsals and stuff like that. It's it's better doing that in person, I'm sure. Absolutely. 100 percent. And also, you know, even when people were doing things during the pandemic, you know, which I did some I did a theater workshop and I did uh, <clears throat> I subbed on a couple of shows. And the COVID protocols we had to go through, the masking and the t constant testing and the, yeah. it, it was, it's exhausting, you know, just it to is. sort of try to keep the cast and the company healthy right? You know, while we're on the same building for that period of time. It was, right. it was very taxing, very challenging. And I'm, I'm not sorry to see that time go. I hope, I hope it's in our <laughs> rear sure. view mirror for good by now. I hope, I hope so too. Um, but so who was one of your favorite artists that you worked with and why? 
Oh, okay. All right. Uh, I got a couple of couple of good answers for that. You know, uh, I, like I said, I grew up in the South. Grew up with my mom's record collection, which was like Gladys Knight, right. uh, Stevie Wonder, I Tina Turner. We talked about before. Uh, King Floyd, who was kind of an obscure Southern soul artist. Mm -hmm. So as I became into you know my professional life, you know, I started working with a band here in New York City called the Uptown Horns Band, and they were sort of the group of choice when when these some of these R&B artists would come through town to use. So through the Uptown Horns band, I met uh, Sam Moore from Sam and Dave and Percy Sledge and Eddie Floyd and uh, Rufus Thomas and Carla Thomas. And, you know, we backed up all these wonderful, wonderful classic soul artists who brought, got their start mostly in the 1960s. And then because of that, I met I met Martha Reeves and the Vandellas and uh, I spent 13 years on the road as the music director for Sam Moore from Sam and Dave playing, you know, his music from the Stax Records era. Uh, I'm, a, uh, I'm a soul man. Hold on. I'm coming. I thank you. All those great hits. And I spent about a year and something on the road with Martha Reeves and the Vandellas as, as her music director playing Dancing in the Streets and uh, Jimmy Mack and come get these memories. And to me, those were some of my most favorite cherished you know associations over time there have been some some other you know spot points like we played with sam we played uh obama's first inauguration wow uh, we played a big um concert down in in washington dc and it was sam moore with special guest elvis costello and sting so wow. elvis and sting were singing with us you know like we weren't singing with them they were singing with us it was kind of a very unique sort of position to be in and you know when i was in high school listening to records and trying to learn how to play one of the first people i tried to play with like was uh was the police with sting you know playing a message in a bottle and roxanne those are songs that we played at my high school talent show right right <laughs> and then here i am a mere 27 years later standing on stage with sting playing message in a bottle in washington mm. dc in front of all these people in tuxedos i'm going like well this is weird <laughs> living know, the dream it's a yeah it's kind of a career <laughs> life full circle sort of moment you know so i have like some snapshots like that in my life but all of that happened because of sam it's all because of sam so i owe so many great times and memories on the road to sam Martha Reeves, Shirley Austin Reeves, the original original lead singer of the world famous Shirelles. I want to get her her billing right. Um, these are people who are like you know second parents to me because they're a generation ahead of me. So right. you know, they're like my my road mothers and fathers, and just just mm. loved working with them all those all those years. Well, that is wonderful. Well, Ivan, tell everybody where they can pick up your book and get in contact with you. Plug yourself. <laughs> <laughs> right on. All right. Everything, everything. And I mean, everything yes. is at funkboy.net, F-U-N-K-B-O-Y.net, including links to my book, which is on Amazon called Am I Famous Yet? Memoir of a Working Class Rockstar, because I work for a living. That's what I do. I lift my own amps. Um, <laughs> and yeah, everything links are there. Am Amazon. Uh, the book is available as a an hardcover, soft cover, as a Kindle edition. It's also available on YouTube. If you're, it's available on uh, um, Anchor FM. If you're in, if you need audio books, you know you can listen to it for free on that. Watch it on YouTube. I read every chapter on YouTube, uh, or you can buy a physical copy if that's so uh, entrances you. I mean, whatever medium you're in, I have a way for you to enjoy this work, this collection of memoir. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Ivan, again, for joining me on this, edi this edition of the Vibe Selection Podcast. And for everybody else, if you'd like to connect with me, you can do so on IG at Vibe Selection Podcast. And if you'd like to support the Vibe Selection Podcast, you can do so at www.patreon.com slash Vibe Selection. Once again, stay safe, stay healthy out there. I'll see you all next week. Bye. Thank you for joining Vibe Selection with Kyra. Come vibe out with us again next time and hear the latest on today's hot topics. Find us on Instagram at I am Kyra Mahoney or donate at www.patreon.com slash vibe selection.